Good morning. I have a lot of energy this morning, which at probably 2 p.m. I will totally crash, but you guys get energized, Tim, and yeah, we'll see. Uh, and what I'm teaching today is, uh, how would I describe it? It's, it's not easy. It's not simplistic stuff. It's some of the stuff that for a lot of us, if we've been following Jesus for quite a while, might be one of those things where it's like, why didn't anyone tell me this? And for some of us, maybe we were younger in the faith, maybe we're still kicking the tires of Christianity. A lot of what we're going to talk about today is where you're headed if you're really serious about this Jesus whom we talk about. So thank you for joining us as a community as we walk through this short series on the emphasis and values here at Church of the Valley. The reason we do series like this that we're walking through, and next week will be the last week of it, is so that those who are new to the community can hear what we value, what we believe makes us distinct, and what our emphasis is. And also for those of us who have been here for quite a while, to either recommit or also see where maybe our values and emphasis may have changed in our own lives. So far in this four-week series, we're third week this week, So far, we've emphasized the gospel, the the good news of grace found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We emphasize this because we don't really know any other thing that we should put of as first importance or should be what we center on as a gathering and a community regarding what we're making the main thing. Last week, we spent our time talking about a value that we have that we don't have to check our minds at the door as we walk in to be a Christian because history has a lot to say about the resurrection of Jesus. Last week was a message that in many different ways I've been sharing for almost 20 years with the hope that it would strengthen the believer's ability to walk in confidence when it comes to their belief in Christ or help the skeptic or agnostic realize that there are proven reasons to believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. We've discussed the heart. We've discussed the head. And today we venture into walking through the hands, can I see your hands, spirit fingers? Yes, the hands of our faith. That's a bring it on reference. I don't expect all of you to know that. Today we embark on something that is misunderstood and often forgotten about regarding or when it comes to the Christian walk. And it's that our Christian walk is a progressive walk and not just a high jump into faith. Today we talk about how we value spiritual growth, or a synonym for spiritual growth is sanctification and or Christ-likeness. For years we've talked about how we, and maybe you've seen this on campus or you've heard us say this before, we've talked about how we want to grow into the likeness of Jesus by being doers of the word for the right reasons. But often we take a good thing and we make it God. And that is what I want to warn against today as we walk through the scriptures in Ephesians chapter 4. I want to give us some guardrails today regarding what we will study. And this isn't my outline. I'm not going to unpack each of these. But these are three points I want us to walk away with that will help us understand our value of spiritual growth. So if you take notes, I'm going to recommend you write these down. First, sanctification, spiritual growth, is N evidence of our justification. It is one of the things that shows that we were made right before God in the first place, the reality that we're growing spiritually. Secondly, sanctification is not the point. Jesus is the point. All right? And then third, just like our salvation, sanctification is not something we do, but it's something God does in us. 
So we have these three. Our sanctification is evidence of our justification. Sanctification, spiritual growth, Christ-likeness. There's a lot of words for this. Is not the point. Jesus is the point. And our salvation, just like our salvation, sanctification is not something we do, but it's something that God does in us. So with that in mind, we're going to unpack what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus regarding spiritual maturity. So chapter 4, verse 1, let's go. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul begins with, as a prisoner of the Lord. Has anyone called themselves that this week? No. No. This is a title he refers to himself in chapter 3 of Ephesians, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, in 2 Timothy, and in Philemon. Paul was one who was under God's authority. What the world might look down upon, Paul found comfort in the fact that he was God's possession. He was imprisoned in God's will and God's glory. He then urges the Ephesians to live a life worthy of the calling that they have received. Okay, I've heard this taught, I've taught this, I've, I've read this, I've looked at uh, what commentators say about this, and it is so easy to attempt to focus on the calling. And I think we all want some special revelation from God where we think we have a specific calling, but the Ephesians that Paul is addressing have been called to repentance by faith, to trust and follow Jesus. So you want to know how special you are? You're that special. You also have been called to repentance by faith. And we, or they, Christians, ought to live in a way that is worthy of this calling. For the podcast, they just did bunny ears, quotes. Worthy is a difficult word to hear. If you come from fundamental or legalistic background, please stand up. I'm just kidding. You don't have to stand up. (laughs) Because if you come from one of those backgrounds, you probably hear worthy and think earning. But worthy isn't about earning. Worthiness is about receiving the gift that was given by grace. The Christian walk, spiritual maturity, is progressive. It's an insurance company, but let's give you a definition of progressive, not the insurance company, but the word. It's happening or developing gradually or in stages, proceeding step by step. The problem with this definition, this idea of progressive, is that the problem with this definition is that people tend to apply this definition to salvation rather than sanctification, spiritual growth, Christ-likeness. Our salvation is not progressive. God saves. We're reborn. We're made new. We are a new creation in Christ. And by faith, we receive this good news. But when we have received this, not achieved salvation, but received salvation, we then begin to walk with Jesus. And there are times when it's forward motion. There are times where we feel so close to Jesus and we feel like, man, he's like right there. And then there are times that it's not as forward motion. There are times we think we are, I love this term, it's not biblical, but Christians love to use it, backsliding. That's the stupidest word. And yet God uses our sin, to show us where we have grown because of our willingness to repent, to apologize, to turn around, to own our mistake, and to turn from it. But sanctification does not happen alone. It happens while we rub against one another and the hard and sharp edges of ourselves are dulled and shaped in relationships with one another. So he says in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
well, I'm out. (laughs) If this is the prerequisite, thankfully it's not. It's actually what the Spirit of God does in those who have trusted Jesus as we pursue Him progressively. But it takes time. It takes mistakes being owned. Yeah, I did that wrong. You're right. And it takes willingness to abide. That word's going to, we're going to talk a lot about it. Abide rather than try really hard. And what do I mean by abide? Well, back in, I don't know, Roosevelt uh, times, when we taught in John, in John 15, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he speaks of this idea of abiding in the ESV version especially. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, or he he cuts off. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean, he says, because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Does it kind of sound like a riddle, anyone? Kind of does, right? Now, abiding tends to be seen as trying, but it isn't. The better definition is the NIV version of the exact same passage, which just instead of saying abide, says remain in. It means to remain in, to stay with, to to be fastened to. And I don't know about you, but if you're ever reading your Bible and then there's like just a reference to another verse somewhere, like that, for the geek in me, that is my favorite part where I'm like, oh, this word's used somewhere else. And so I found this idea of abiding somewhere else in the Bible where most of us wouldn't even notice. Acts chapter 27, 29 through 31, we will get to this supposedly at the, sometime in the next year, we will get to Acts 27. It's very exciting. But Paul has been preaching the gospel, been traveling throughout all of Asia Minor, and he, he is, he's just been uh, spending time with different kings and trying to testify to what he's experienced with Jesus. And then he gets sent on a boat, and he's going to Rome, and then a bunch of stuff happens. There's a terrible storm, and that's where we find this in chapter 27, verse 29. Here's what Luke writes. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So where's the word abide? It's the word stay in. To abide means to remain with, to be fastened to, to stay in. Otherwise, you cannot be saved. Abiding is about remaining or staying, being fastened to the one who we need, which is Jesus Christ. And so our worthiness is not about, is not about trying really hard or, or striving for something. It's about remaining or abiding. And remaining is something that we get to choose to do, and we cannot do if we've never truly trusted him. But if we have trusted him, we continue to remain in him. Now, I always thought abiding was striving, working really hard, and yet it isn't. I can't be humble on my own. I can't be patient on my own. But those things begin to grow in me as I abide, as I remain in Christ. It is the natural or really the supernatural progression of being daily connected to Jesus. So let me 
let me just make this simple. A lot of us are like, man, I don't feel like I'm growing. Well, are you abiding? And the answer is probably no. You're, you possibly are like, yes, I love Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. But you kind of put that relationship on the shelf sometimes. I know I do. And then I get frustrated with him that he's not growing me more. And then I start to go through hard things. And because I'm not connected to him, I shake my fist at him. So there's something beautiful about this idea of remaining, about abiding, about continually being with him. And this is something that cannot be microwaved. It cannot be fast-forwarded or, as Ruth put it, instapotted. This is the benefit and the pruning of following Jesus. Some want to pursue him until it gets hard. Can we be real about this? Yeah, I want Jesus, but now all of a sudden it's getting difficult. Some want to follow him until the excitement wears off. But for those of us who continue because the Spirit of God resides in us, you will experience growth. But spiritual growth, as Mike puts it, is it tends to be something that sneaks up on us. Rarely, if ever, do we see spiritual growth in real time. But when we look back, we see how God has changed us over time. I'm so grateful for 41 years of life. I'm not even going to pretend I'm younger than that. I'm not. I'm even more grateful for 21 years of following and abiding in Jesus. Have I done it perfectly? As Jordan Pill says, nope. Not at all. But God has been faithful. When I've been faithless, and boy, oh boy, does God deserve praise, not just for my salvation, my right standing before God, but God deserves praise for my sanctification, my spiritual growth. God is the catalyst and the one who deserves credit, not my ability to fail, but his ability to redeem my failures. Verse 3. Paul writes, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Oh boy, make every effort. Paul gives the Ephesians a challenge to do everything they can to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit, he says. What is the Spirit's main objective? Well, according to John 15, 26 through 27, when Jesus is speaking and it's written down, he says, when the advocate, the Spirit, Numa." comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So what's the Spirit's main objective? To testify about Jesus. The Spirit makes known who the Son is. The Spirit resides in those who God has drawn to himself, who have made as God has made you a Christian. And so in Romans 8, verse 9, Paul writes, and he says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. But then he gives this caveat. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. No Holy Spirit, no Christ. So to keep the unity, or even to have unity, it's rooted in who the Son is to us, and we testify about him. Another way of saying this is that our unity is around the gospel, not unity for unity's sake. And because of that, the finished work of Christ either compels or repels us to or from community. When we want to be about the gospel, to be about the Son and the Son alone, this will either draw us towards a community or it will repel us from a community, unfortunately, when we're not making it about the finished work of the Son. Verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, 
just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul reiterates this interpretation of what the unity of the Spirit is. It's rooted, it's fixated, and it's tied to God's work and God's people. But unity isn't the point. Jesus is the point. But unity found in Jesus Christ is one of the greatest gifts that God gives us after the gift of himself. There's so many people in this church that I'm so grateful for because we can have conversations about the work of Christ. We can talk about the things that God is doing in my life, that God's doing in your life. And it's not because we tried really hard, it's because we're just daily trying to walk with him imperfectly. But you really wanna grow? Because I think that's kind of the thing that most of us really want the answer to. Like, so, so yes, I, I received Jesus. I, I accepted the work that he's done. I trust him. So how do I get conformed to look more like him? Well, first off, you don't do it in a vacuum. You do it with other people who are also in process. Sanctification, spiritual growth, rarely happens without God's church being a huge tool to carve and shape us. Here's the thing about church. As most of us understand, it's not the building, it's not the steeple, it's the people. And people require a lot of work, don't we? We can be real. Oh, now I'm getting talking back. When it, okay, good. Perhaps that is why some enjoyed the pandemic. Because there was less requirement to wash your hair or put on pants. Let's just be real. Right? <laughs> Zoom, Zoom call right here? Yeah. And yet we were created, if you like it or not, we were created to be relational beings. God points this out in Genesis 2. It was not good for man to be alone. You could take that to say that everyone needs a romantic relationship. That's not necessarily what I think he was implying only. I think beyond that, or instead of, everyone needs relationships with other people. Because God created us with this need, and it wasn't sinful. It was before the fall. It was inherent to who we are. But sin has perversed this. Sin either downplayed this or prioritized relationships with other people and made them God rather than Jesus God. But God doesn't call us to be his employee. God draws us by relationship with Jesus to be God's children. And as a father with a pretty full house, I get this. And when this is understood through the lens of the gospel, relationship with God and his people, bound by the unity of the Spirit, expressed in belief in the finished work of Christ as our only way of being justified before God. The only way we're a Christian is what Jesus has done, not what we do. It means we get to grow with and because of each other. I'm going to more to that in a second. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. You ever read something in scripture and it's kind of like a trigger thing for you? Where you read it and you're like, oh, this is a trigger verse for me. As I was under someone in a former job that always seemed to quote this verse as meaning, well, if you acted badly, that was just the grace you were given. That's so stupid. And so many times Mike likes to rile me up by saying that to me. Thanks. <laughs> See, this becomes the spiritual excuse of, well, his parents didn't pay enough attention to him. And yet, as you study what Paul is pointing out here, that's not what this is implying. It's not an excuse. Paul is pointing out that God has given gifts. So real quick, if you guys could move your heads around, can you look at other people in here? Look upstairs. Barbara's up there. Like, look around. There are different gifts that are in this place. 
which is a grace, getting what you do not deserve. A gift is a grace through the, to the people that are in his collective, that are in his church. And that those gifts are given to each of us, but they're given in an incomplete way. Here's what I mean by that. Not any of us have all the gifts, if you will. So there is a dependence that we have upon one another as a church community. Let me, uh, from leadership within the eldership to the staff to the teaching team, all of those that are serving here on Sundays and throughout the week, there is a reliance we have on God to provide the right gifts and, conser and concern for different needs and opportunities within the church. We need each other, not just to serve one another's needs, but to help one another grow and mature. Verse 8, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions, question mark. I didn't read that correctly. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Paul is quoting Psalm 68, 18. And he points out that Jesus' victory over death and sin means that he can now bestow or give gifts upon his people to be the church of the living God in victory and to continue what some theologians call the unfinished work of Christ, which is for the whole world to hear the good news of grace in Jesus Christ. That's part of our responsibility, church. So why do we gather? Uh, I think we gather here, especially on a Sunday, to give us the opportunity to worship God corporately. Worship team, phenomenal, guys. So good. So good. So we do this to equip one another with the Word of God, which you're currently experiencing in real time, while being encouraged to have a community that if we share with the people in our lives, the people that are far from God, if we tell them about the difference that God has made in our lives, the, and then God draws those people to himself. We have a community. We have a family. We have, here's a word, ecclesia, the movement of God's people to invite people into. Verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, <gasps> moving on to verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Here's why I read both verses. Verse 11 gets so much attention by teachers and preachers, and we argue and we debate if all of these gifted roles are still in the church today. But who cares? What matters is, what are the gifted roles for? To equip his people for the works of service. To equip, to train, to give opportunity for people to serve God. What's more sanctifying than serving God alongside other people? Parenting, that, that helps too. And I don't know, we are serious about offering these opportunities for people in this church. That is why we encourage you to look into serving in children's ministry, in tech ministry, in worship ministry, in hospitality. It's why we have different voices teach the word and you don't have to hear my uh, tone every single week and everyone said amen quietly to themselves. It's why we have different community group leaders who invest. It's why people serve the youth ministry. These are opportunities for us to be sanctified and to mature spiritually. 
But God apportioned gifts and abilities in a way that sometimes is obvious. Let me, let me give you some simple ones. Um, Finley, my beautiful baby girl, she's one and a half. She's so cute. She's become a parkour master, and now she climbs everything. Finley doesn't preach sermons, okay? All right. We have a wonderful, amazing organist who has been doing her job here for almost 70 years. I don't lead us in preludes and postludes on the organ. You know what I'm saying? But God does have gifts that he has given the body of believers here at COV. And we want to utilize, we want to equip, and we want to help people live in those gifts. Why? Because of what Paul said. So the body of believers may be built up. More on that next week. But I think where Christians get off the rails is when they focus on the gifts, they exalt the gifted rather than the gift giver, and we focus all of our attention on how good at church we can be rather than our church experience being all about lifting up how good God is to save and sanctify us. Verse 13, and we're going to be here for a moment. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So you have all this buildup of God's work and his gifts that he gives to his church to make much of himself and his work. And what is the result of those that he uses who engage in the church and follow Christ in community? Maturity. So for all of you younger people that are like, man, I love being young and all you old people are old. Ha <laughs> ha, we wanna be mature. We wanna grow. We wanna look more like Jesus. But, and this is a big Sir Mix-a-Lot, but this cannot happen if you attempt to do Christianity on your own. It can't happen. If you pick and choose what you like and don't like about his word, if you attempt to be a soloist in your spiritual walk, you might look like the part for a time, but you might find out that you've been running your race in vain, as Paul puts it. So he says, until we all reach unity in the faith. Once again, Paul goes back to unity, not expressed in a loving or tolerant attitude of others. Okay, let me be clear about this. That's not what unity is. It's not just, well, I'm tolerant of you, even though you bother me. But uniting in the core beliefs of Christianity, which is the gospel of grace in the work of Jesus Christ as mankind's only way to God. Unity in the faith and knowledge in the Son of God. So what about Jesus? Most people, at least in America, have heard his name. They yell his name when they stub their toes, right? They may even know about his death and resurrection because they go to church on Christmas or Easter. They might know that as a story rather than a factual thing, as a gateway to God through faith. But I've, I've heard people talk about this church before that aren't a part of this church, and I don't know if they mean this as a diss, but they call us a Jesus church. Yes, we are. And it's because there is no other name under heaven where salvation is found but Jesus. And we want to introduce and help each other and everyone who is a part of this community to meet and get to know the Son better. And by doing this, we abide. We remain. And it isn't through trying really hard. It's by staying the course with the King of Kings that we continue to grow and he continues to rub off on us. 
This is what we emphasize. This is what we value. Spiritual growth that doesn't happen by accident or by trying really hard, but by abiding in Christ daily. When we sin, and we do, even after submitting to Christ and becoming a Christian, which remember our definition from the first week of the series, what sin was, to not make Jesus central in our lives. Guilty. Sin separates those of us who are not yet Christians. But for the believer, sin, which we still do, slows down our spiritual growth progression because we aren't following him, but we're backtracking or backsliding to our old selves. So we want to be unified. We want to be unified around the finished work of Jesus, the gospel. We want to know the Son more and more. We want to mature and be more like Christ. And in all of this, we strive to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, Paul says. Will we be perfect like him in this life? Uh Uh-uh. In eternal life? Yes. We are seen as sons and daughters because of what Jesus has done. So while our continued sin slows down our spiritual maturity before God, we are seen as saints because of the gift of Jesus being superimposed upon us eternally. So did you fail this week? Let's be real. God sees his son, and I can live in that freedom and continue to not sin the way that I did and turn from it. But that doesn't mean we don't strive to be like Jesus, but we, we strive to be like Jesus not for salvation's sake or even necessarily for sanctification's sake, but when we know him, we love him. And when we love him, we want to be with him. And when we want to be with him, we want to be more like him. Verse 4, 14. Paul says, Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. Jesus tells us to be childlike, not childish. Jesus tells us to be childlike, not childish. Childlikeness is a refreshing simplicity of faith which believes and acts without questioning God on everything. But being an infant spiritually is totally normal at first. But as we pursue, as we obey, as we walk with Christ, maturity should and does take place. So Paul points out that it's childish to be swayed by every type of teaching. Now, um, so I run, which you all know, because I like to, no guy who runs a marathon doesn't want to tell everyone. But this past week, I, I was running and I was listening to a sermon about this passage from the 1970s. How many of you weren't alive in the 1970s? Okay, de- decent amount of us. And it was funny to hear this preacher speaking into the culture in the 1970s as I was listening to the sermon 50 years ago, saying things exactly the way that we would say them today. So I'm going to show you the quote. Here's what he said regarding this passage. Did you know that there are fads in the religious life? And they come and go like fashions and clothes. Immature Christians are always riding the crest of the new fad, forever picking up the newest thing that is hit, and usually it is presented in some kind of book. I find Christians are continually discussing some new exciting book that seems to have all the answers to every spiritual problem. I've come to recognize through the years that this is a mark of immaturity. They do not talk about the Bible that way, yet this is the book that really has the answer. 
the most exciting book of all, but it is always some writer whom they think has grasped the basic and central truth. There are hobbies which people identify themselves with. Prophecy can become a hobby, and then spiritual life becomes a fad. Then some other aspect of Christian life is taken up. People make a great deal of these, shifting from one thing to another, constantly changing. That is a mark of childishness, immaturity. Pastor Ray Stedman. If you replace book with podcast or YouTube video, I would assume he was talking in 2022. And the reality is that the truth of this book is unchanging. And yet, a sign of immaturity is disguised in a false maturity of those who think that there's some code to crack, some Da Vinci code, and use language like, well, we have to go deeper, or that we need to move beyond the gospel. Listen, that's heresy. Not because there aren't things in this book to learn that aren't necessarily the good news of Jesus, but the lens in which we read this book, church, this is our value is that we read this book through the lens of the gospel of grace. You're not David. (laughs) We are not the hero. Jesus is the hero on every page. And so anyone who wants to move on from the gospel probably doesn't understand what this book is really about or for. Maturity doesn't come from cracking a code or attempting to fast charge our spiritual lives. Fast charge, is that what Tesla does? Okay, that works. So I'm gonna give you a good takeaway, all right? So when Laura walks around, don't leave her hanging for too long, but whoever wants to share this one first wins kudos, but the kudos mean nothing. You ready? Spiritual maturity comes from ongoing experience of obeying Jesus. Spiritual maturity comes from an ongoing experience of obeying Jesus, ongoing. Notice I didn't say the amount of time you've been a Christian. Because I've known plenty of people, including myself, so let me tease myself, that sat parked in their Christian walk for quite a while and then wondered why they hadn't seen much growth. I've said this before, but I figured I'd remind us if you've forgotten, our spiritual maturity isn't based on our manufacture date. But the more succinct yardstick is our mileage of walking and abiding in Jesus. And mileage can vary, can it? Just because you've been inside church building or identified as a Christian for decades doesn't mean you have decades of mileage. Cars that are towed don't run up the odometer, you know what I'm saying? And for far too many Christians, they seem to either park their relationship in the garage waiting for a day when they think they need God or they lack satisfaction in other things in their lives so they figure they'll just take the relationship with God out for a spin. Am I just preaching to myself? No one wants to admit that I'm preaching to them. Okay, verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. I know how this is read. Let me ruin that. Instead of being swayed by every possible new and exciting teaching, Paul says, speaking the truth in love, implying that as we grow, we grow in the truth. We grow in affection of God because of his truth. Some commentators say that we ought to share the truth of the gospel with love and not combatively. Totally agree. If you've got a sign on the the side of the street, I will make your life interesting. 
But I believe this interpretation of growing in the truth as we grow in our affection for God in His truth is the proper interpretation that Paul is implying here, which is more consistent with the maturity emphasis and context, that growing isn't just doing stuff better, like being nicer when we share the truth of the Lord, but growing is growing in our knowledge of the Son and affection for God as we grow in our understanding of truth. I remember when um, I, I'd, I'd just been a Christian for a couple of years, my beautiful wife, Erin, had been a Christian for a lot longer than that. And I remember, like, before we were dating, we were kind of in the same sphere of influence. And I remember I was like a new Christian, and I would get so excited about just the silliest stuff to her. I'd be like, Erin, look, Jesus loves me. <laughs> yes, Tim, I know. <laughs> but that's what it's like when you're a baby in the faith. You're excited about these things because they're new to you. And that's not necessarily being childish. That's being childlike. And I think a lot of us have lost that. We've lost the reality of how good it is that the gospel is true. That Jesus, here, let me, let me say this with all uh, confidence. He rose from the dead, guys. Yeah. And not just because I hope that's true, but because of everything I said last week in that seminar, which was a sermon. So Paul then says, we will grow in every respect the mature body of him (laughs) who is the head, Christ. So motivation question, since I have you here. Why do you come to a church service? I'm going to pass around the microphone. I'm just kidding. Who are you attempting to learn about? Who are you trying to grow and understand better? Who are you here to worship? I mean, we all know the correct answer is what? Jesus! Yeah, it's a fun, fun way to say it. But is that why we come to this place? Is that why you serve? Is that why you belong to a body of believers in a church community? Because if it isn't for Jesus, we might have just solved the question of why growth hasn't been happening the way that you want it to. Motivation matters in Christianity. And while I know things get very, very convoluted with preferences and traditions, the reason I would contend that we do this thing and belong to this thing is not our preferences, but it's because of our Savior. So in the famous words of the great theologian Ice Cube, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Check your motivations. Do you attend church to justify yourself? If you're in Christ, guess what? Already justified. So that probably shouldn't be your motivation. Do you attend church so you'll have friends? Well, not bad. The motivation tends to be disappointing. Not because friends are impossible to make, but because usually we expect things of the church that was never what God's design for the church was. The church service is the place that we come to worship and exalt and learn more about Jesus, and we're all in unity on the gospel, and as we're in unity in the gospel, we start to grow together. And we get this shared experience of doing this thing together. But being part of the body of Christ is not something you can do when you please or do the exact minimum and expect to have huge spiritual results. Christianity, serving Jesus, walking and abiding in him, it does take effort. 
Not to save yourself or even grow yourself, but God doesn't carry you along without your motivation being that you want more of him. Heaven. You all think about that this week? Some of us do, some of us don't. I've heard what people have said about heaven, of these people that claim that they've had a near-death experience and have spent some time in the heaven, um, spent time in heaven. Heaven is not the place that has all the stuff you've always wished would be in one place. Like, it's not a Toys R Us attached with the Dave and Busters. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> heaven is the place where God is. And that is the motivation we all had to, ought to have in this life and the next. We want to be attached to him. We want to abide in him. We want to remain in him because there is no greater relationship. And yet God gives us human relationships in the church to mold, shape, and sanctify us. So if none of this sermon is hurt yet, buckle up. From him, verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Paul reiterates the need and function of the body to the head. We are connected to Christ with one another. Sorry, y'all. You want to grow? You grow together. God doesn't give another option. He gives us the church as the only option. He gives us this church, and I'd even say he gives the church gifts and graces with the people that are there for a reason, to sanctify his people and glorify himself. So you ever wonder why there's that person at church that's hard to be around in the church? You ever wonder about that? If you haven't, you're that person, for the record. It's for your maturity. You're going to run and do what is natural, or are you going to be motivated by love for God and engage and care and see them as someone created in God's image who, like you, needs grace and needs mercy? As I wrote this message, I spent more time in the idea of abiding than I ever have. And what came to my mind over and over again is that it's not some secret formula or an impossible way of doing Christianity, it is the only way to do Christianity. Because Christianity is about Christ and remaining and staying and being fastened to abiding in him is the only way to grow. And unfortunately for all of us spiritual introverts or castaway Christians, God does not intend for you to grow alone. He gives us the church with all of its flaws with all of its wrinkles, with all of its blemishes, and he is building something that through each of us and utilization of the gifts that he has given each one of us who has been found in Christ to make the church a factory of growth and a lighthouse in the fog for those of people who are far from God. Worship team, would you come on up? And I'm going to end. Uh, totally not true, but... That's what we say. I'm going to end with this quote. Soren Kierkegaard, a theologian, put it this way. Christians remind me of schoolboys who want to look up the answers to their math problems in the back of the book rather than work them through. We yearn for shortcuts, but shortcuts usually lead away from growth, not towards it. So church, why are we doing this? Why are you attending? Why are you watching online? Do you want to be a part of God's church, or do you want to play church once a week? Or at least when you don't have something better to do. 
I love you guys. I do. You're like, why is he being so mean? I'm not being mean. I'm just reading the Bible. Get mad at God. And part of that love is to tell you the truth. Plain and pretending in the Christian faith gets you literally nowhere. But abiding and relying in and on Christ grows you more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And I can't imagine a more important thing any of us could do once we trust Christ. Because our sanctification is evidence of our justification. Sanctification isn't the point. Jesus is the point. And like our salvation, sanctification is not something we do. It's something that God does in us. Okay, I'll really end now. Philip Brooks a former minister of Boston's Trinity Episcopal Church, is perhaps best known as the author of Oh Little Town of Bethlehem. He was a very busy pastor. It kind of, those words are synonymous. Yet he always seemed relaxed and unburdened, willing to take time for anyone in need. Shortly before Brooks died, a young friend wrote to him and asked the secret of his strength and his serenity. And in a heartfelt response, Brooks credited his still-growing relationship with Christ. He wrote, the more I've thought it over, the more sure it has seemed to me that these last years have had peace and fullness, which there did not used to be. It is a deeper knowledge and truer love of Christ. I cannot tell you how personal this grows to me. He is here. He knows me, and I know him, and it's the most real thing in the world, and every day makes it more real, and one wonders with delight what will grow as the years go on. See, that illustration might not work for everyone, but Mike and I, possibly, just because we're pastors. But when I read that, and then as those of us who were serving were about to uh, walk, as we walked through the service for what we were going to do today, we go upstairs so Barbara doesn't have to go back up, down, up, down. And we go up there and we walk through what we're going to do. And then I, I missed my dear sister Barbara's uh, sound of her voice when she prays. And so I said, Barbara, would you pray? And she prayed. And it was the best illustration of abiding I could ever, ever imagine. Because she has countless decades of walking with Jesus, not perfectly, but willingly. And the more that she has abided, the more that she's remained in him, the more that that relationship with God has grown. And I want to be Barbara when I grow up. And I ask that all of us would be willing to grow up and be people that would say, man, I, I don't need to try harder. I don't need to just try to be at more things. I need to abide. And as I abide, as I spend time with God, as I remain in him, over time, I will start to see this growth. I don't need to have every answer to every Bible question. I need to just spend my time with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, abiding seems too easy, but it's really hard if you're not the one leading us in it. And so we thank you for your spirit who guides us. We thank you for your word who reminds us. We thank you for the truth of the gospel that allows us to realize that it's not about how good we can be, it's about what you've already accomplished on our behalf and how we're seen perfect before your eyes because of Jesus. So Father, I pray that COV would be a church that abides. Doesn't try real hard, doesn't try to make a name for ourselves. God, I pray that we'd be a community that makes much of Jesus's name. And through that, you would get glory. If there's 50 people in the room or 5,000, God, we ask that you would get glory through the people that you are growing to look more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.